Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Well, welcome to today's teaching as we continue to explore who we are as humans. Humans. It's been quite a journey so far, hasn't it? Well, let's, let's do a little bit of a recap. So for the first two weeks, we looked at the essential foundation that God created us in his image to reflect his divine relationality through our relational life. And we got to get this down deep in order to grasp the glory and the gift of being a human being. Then for two more weeks, we started to flesh that out. Come on. A little laugh. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Uh, and we looked at how we are embodied, that we image God relationally as embodied sexed persons, as whole integrated people, although we are also broken and in need of restoration. That's where we, first two weeks image, second two weeks on being embodied. But now we're going to have to ask, what is this all about? I mean, so we are embodied images of God, but For what? We can marvel at a grand invention, but still not have any idea what it's been designed for, right? You ever seen some of those old inventions and you have to guess what they're for? Yeah. We can stare at stunning architecture, but not really understand what it's been built for. Or we can wonder at God's creation of humanity, but still not have a clue about what God's purpose is for us. And it's this purpose that we're going to turn to now for these final two weeks of our teaching series on human identity. And it's essential that we do this because we can't embrace our full identity as humans without understanding our purpose as embodied images of God. How can you know who you are if you don't know why you are? Truly. How can you know who you are if you don't know why you are? And a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about human identity stems from exactly this. If we don't know our purpose, how can we know ourselves? If we don't know what we've been created for, how can we flourish personally? How can we help others flourish? If we aren't aware of the profound calling and responsibility of being an image of God, how will we ever experience true significance in our lives? But... Of course, we are surrounded by a lot of messaging, both subtle and overt, telling you why you exist all the time, telling you what your purpose in life is. And that purpose that's being stated to you, shown to you, uh, you know, constantly you're barraged with them, that purpose can begin to form your identity. What are some of those messages? Well, just picking out a few How about this? Your purpose is to consume and accumulate. Therefore, you have the identity of a consumer. There's lots out there who would like you to be shaped in that identity. You know that. 
your purpose is to make the people around you happy. And so your identity is one of a slave to someone else's comfort or maybe a victim of their displeasure. Or conversely, maybe your purpose is to seek personal happiness, personal comfort. And so as a result, you're pushed around, pulled around. You're really a sponge for anything that sort of feels good and you really want to avoid anything that feels bad. Or maybe it is that your purpose is to raise kids. Your purpose is to pursue a career. Your purpose is to provide for a family or achieve success, all of which can be good things, but elevated to the status of core purpose. And suddenly our identity then is shaped by that purpose. And is that really who you are? I mean, incomplete. Is that who you are? And then, of course, there's many people who, if asked, couldn't tell you what their purpose is. They have absolutely no idea, even if they were given some time to reflect on it and think about it. And as a result, they're at the mercy of others, aren't they? They're reactive to their circumstances. They're drifting through life. And they have no idea precisely who they are or even why they exist. And those who don't know their purpose in life are either doomed to invent one for themselves, which is pretty shaky, let's be honest, or perhaps even more frightening, you're going to be at the whim of somebody else's idea of what your purpose in life should be. Someone who definitely does not have your best interests in mind. So do you know why you're here now? Like as in why you exist? Do you understand why God made you? Why he made you specifically in his image as an embodied person? Uh, we often will say uh, the, the, the little saying, you know, you're a human being, not a human doing, right? I, I kind of like that. And I, I've said that a few times, I'm sure, because it can be a right corrective, I think, uh, for, for those of us who maybe have a tendency to get a bit frantic and overworked and identify a little too much with what you do. And then as a result, kind of forget who you are. But let's be clear. Human beings were created to do something. We've been given a role and a responsibility under God, each and every one of us. And without that, understand, without knowing what that is, we can't hope to live the fully human life that we were created and commissioned to live. Yes, you are a human being. But what are you, human, doing? That's the question. Well, for another week, let's dive back into Genesis. It's so multi-layered, this story. It's time to explore today, the question of our purpose. Let's pray as we continue. Lord Jesus, would you lead us now into your word so that we might understand more clearly who we are and how you've created us so we might better understand our identity and our purpose. Amen. Well, we're going to begin with Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 and 10, and I'm going to skip to verse 15. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, Here it is. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing up on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. What a unique little story this is, hey? Pretty familiar uh, for some of us, but a little cultural background will help illuminate it even more. In the ancient Near East, thousands of years ago, it was common practice for pagan priests to create special little gardens, sacred little groves in honor of their gods. And these priest gardeners, they would tend these spaces and they would become luscious and beautiful. And when they were ready, the priests would then create an idol of the God to which this garden was dedicated. Priest artisans, as it were, would fashion some kind of idol using stone or wood or clay, and they would form the image of the God that they intend to worship there. This is fascinating. Uh, They would form this idol, and they would go through a process of shaping, you know, whatever shape it was going to be, shape the ears, uh, the eyes, they, they would make the hands and the legs, the torso, the tail, uh, depending, of course, on what kind of idol uh, they were making. Sometimes these idols were more humanoid, sometimes they were more beastly, often they were a combination of both. As the idol took shape, priests would go through a ritual process of opening the eyes and ears. They would speak magic words and they would breathe life into this idol so that upon the completion of this religious ceremony, the idol would be then propped up, as it were, and set off in the corner as a representation of the God, an embodiment, as it were, of the God who's being worshipped there. And you can just do a simple Google search sometime to see what some of these ancient gods like Molech and uh, Baal look like. Gods that, uh, it turns out, would be a persistent and poisonous trap for the people of Israel in later generations. Well, What would these priests then do with these newly made and newly inspired idols of the God? Well, they would find a prominent place in this special garden, which of course they have made and crafted and and cultivated to be ready for it. And they would set it up there so that all who came into that garden, all who wandered by would know whose garden this was and what God was being worshiped there. Be clear as a bell. And in so doing, they would hope to appease this God and maybe reap benefits of fertility or maybe protection from curses or enemies. Um, It wasn't a kind thing, you understand. But whatever it is they were hoping for, they were hoping that this God would be happy with that. Now, I know your mind is already making some Genesis 2 connections, I hope. Because they're a little hard to miss once you realize that this was going on in the broader culture. We have, of course, an image of God being made. We have it being formed into some kind of a body. We have it being breathed into by its creator and then set up in a special garden as a kind of representative of the God who's worshiped there. You caught all that? Well, what's happening here? It's very powerful. You see, in the days that the family of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob or Israel were being rescued out of Egypt, they had a pretty distinct sense of who they were and who they weren't. Slavery will do that to you. And they saw themselves as a ragtag, beaten down bunch of newly freed slaves, but they did not see themselves as images of God. They were a puny people who'd been worked to death by a maniacal, genocidal maniac, and uh, he was actually the guy that everyone would have said is the image of God. The son of Ra. That guy. Not us. Of course, all that was complete rubbish, and God needed to flip the script on his people. 
He wanted his people to begin to understand who they actually were, that they were actually a newly formed people created in his own image and soon to be placed into a new kind of garden, a luscious promised land, you know, milk and honey and grapes and all that, where they would actually represent this God, their God, the God who rescued them and created them. They would represent him to the rest of the world through their work and through their worship, through all of their relationships. Also, anyone who sort of looked into that garden, looked into that land, looked into that law and that people, at those images of God walking around, they would know, oh, that's the God who's worshipped there. So get this, in Genesis 2, the Holy Spirit inspires this wonderful telling of the creation story using what is a commonly known pagan ritual, but instead of a petty priest trying to make some terrible image to some bloodthirsty God, what we hear is that God bends down himself and gets his own hands dirty. This God first is a gardener and he plants this wonderful, beautiful place and then he makes mud and clay and forms a body, a shape, the Adam. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And the Lord God forms this Adam from the Adama, this earthling from the earth. And then he gets down and he breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. And that man becomes a living soul, a living person, an embodied, fully integrated, not a dead, lifeless, speechless, thoughtless stick or stone standing up in the corner that you can just kick over. But actually, a living, breathing, thinking, relating, living person who images the God who made them in all that they are and do. And then God takes this living soul and plunks him down in a special garden and tells him to take care of it, to nurture it, to rule and represent. And then, of course, as the story rolls on, God uh, creates an equal partner for the man, a woe man from the side of the man, to, to join him in the work so that there's yet another image of God that then, of course, reproduces, revealing, ruling, representing the God who is worshipped and honored. Can you see how God is flipping the identity script of the people of Israel here through this story? You humans are created in the images of me. Your images of me, your, your images I've formed and I've placed in my garden. You've been made to represent me on earth so that when people look at you, they see through you to the God who's worshipped, the God who created. You don't make images that look like me. I make images that look like me. And that's why God is so down on idolatry. You know, the first two commandments, you might know them. Maybe you're less familiar. The very first one is no other gods. But the second one is don't make an image of one either. Don't make an image of me. It's so significant. God says, don't make an image of me because I already made images of me. In that sense, I already made idols of myself, God says. You are them. You are the images. And now live as that, reflecting me through how you care for the world I've given you responsibility to tend. Now, this is extraordinary. And it comes to us, of course, on the heels of a, of a big sort of 10,000-foot view story of Genesis 1, where all the days are marked off, and the human images of God are the pinnacle of God's creative work. And they're given this mandate, and I quote, to reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the animals that scurry on the ground. 
And together, Genesis 1 and 2 performs this, or forms this powerful cocktail of human identity making. When we ask the question, for what? Genesis forms this powerful answer for us that human beings are embodied images of God created to rule and represent the God who made them. The God who not only made them and made the world, but then committed the world itself into their care and rulership. We heard that in Psalm 8 when it was read during our call to worship today, right? You crown them with glory and honor. You set them to rule, right? We rule under God, vice regents, as it were, occupying a powerful place of influence and responsibility. And then through that, we represent the desires of God that all creation would flourish. As embodied images of God, the God who is the king, then we are ruling royalty. When you woke up this morning, do you think of yourself as ruling royalty? You are ruling royalty here on earth. Uh, this next video might help us understand a little more. You have to make sure the sound's on. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were oh. gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called selim, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right. And that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Well, let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. There's a lot more to that video, and so I do encourage you to watch it. Anything by the Bible Project is amazing. But that is enough at least to support what we're already seeing. As embodied images of God, we are ruling royalty, called to represent the God who made us and represent him to the world in the way that we live and the way that we worship, the way that we work, and enjoy God's creation. And it's an antidote to much of the nonsense that we hear about who we are. Ideas that would denigrate our status, make us less, or relegate us even to just the status of a monstrous dominator, or a mindless consumer, or even a helpless victim. That's not who God created us to be. And it's only by regaining our purposeful identity that we can begin to call out the lies that would diminish us or dehumanize us. Because they're coming at us every day. But as we come to a clear picture of who we are, what we are called to do, 
We can begin to discern what it is that is false and needs to be tossed aside. We are ruling royalty, which means that everywhere we go, without exception, we go as representatives of God's caring rule. Everywhere you go. Every place our foot treads, we go under the loving authority of God. Every person we meet, we are seeing another image of God and we share God's passionate desire that that they would also flourish as his images, that they would learn who they are so that they might rule and represent him in all of life. Well, how can we do that? I think there's three steps, at least, as we move forward in this. The first thing is, is that in order for us to be ruling royalty, to really understand it, we need to first keep the king in clear view. King Jesus himself. He is our ruling royal. He is the one who knows what ruling like a royal really looks like. This is why it's so essential as followers of Jesus or those of you who are getting to know Jesus who haven't yet decided to follow him, it is so important that we take those four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the first four books in the New Testament. It's so important that we take those stories, those accounts of Jesus, and we get them into our hearts and minds because through these accounts, we begin to see what the rule of King Jesus looks like in the flesh in an embodied image of God, in a fully human being. He is the one who perfectly images the Father and also reveals to us what it means to be human. And he comes anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring freedom and life and healing and restoration to all. He comes to rule. That is absolutely clear. And we need to know that he is truly the king, but he expresses that rule through care. He expresses that rule through healing the sick, delivering those who are oppressed by the devil, loving the outcasts, pushing back the darkness that would seek to destroy people. Jesus rules as a king through service. He doesn't claim positions of power over people, but rather takes the position of a servant, right? Puts a towel over his arm, washes feet and welcomes children and speaks grace to the broken and truth to the lost. And he expresses the royal rule in everything that he does by doing everything he can do to help people flourish again, be restored under their good God, be restored Not only does he go to family and friends, but even to the foes, even to the enemy, because he wants human beings to be restored fully to who they were created to be under God. We're told over and over again through the scripture that Jesus is the perfect image of God and the perfect expression of humanity. If you want to know what God looks like, you want to know what humans look like, you look to Jesus. But also, if you want to know what royal rule looks like, we look to Jesus. What does royal rule look like? It looks like Jesus washing someone's dirty feet. What does royal rule look like? It looks like Jesus eating with sinners. Jesus calming storms. Jesus feeding the hungry. Jesus obedient to death so that all could live. We must know that when we embrace our identity as ruling royalty, It's Jesus that we follow, that he leads us. Because without him, we will take the idea of ruling royalty and you know what we're going to do with it, right? Take a look at history. Take a look at the history of the church. 
Whenever we forget Jesus, we will always mistake what the Bible would call dominion for domination. We will always uh, take ruling royalty and think, great, now I can smack some people down. Now I can get what I deserve. Now I can finally make the world right according to my desires. And so many times through history, people have taken ruling royalty, even people who have claimed to do this in the name of Jesus, and they have forgotten Jesus in the process, and that always goes badly. And so as we consider what it means for us to be ruling royal, we will get a clear view of Jesus. We are following Jesus. We are making sure that our whole understanding of that is being shaped by him as we embrace our identity as ruling royals. Step two is to embrace our royal status and accept our ruling role. To somehow go through the process of, of accepting the fact that you were created for this rule. Not somebody else out there, that guy over there, her. It's me, all of us, together. As that little video showed, it wasn't the idea that there's just one person who sort of gets elevated. They're the ones who are going to rule. We're going to serve them. But rather, we together are called to rule under Jesus. And so we have to go through a process of maybe working it within our consciousness. I am a ruling royal. Say it out loud. I am a ruling royal. Ruling royalty. Did you hear someone next to you that said they were ruling royalty and you thought, really? No, because you're thinking about yourself, right? Do you feel like ruling royalty when you get up? When you go about your day? Somehow we have to go through a process of having this identity stamped into us as we take in the scripture, as we pray it through, but as we go about our days. And I think there's a process here of embracing this identity where maybe you need to take a walk around your block or maybe take a trail uh, hike or something. And and as you're doing that, begin to, to hold this in the front of your mind. As a person created in the image of God, wherever I go, God created me to rule under him, to reflect his care. So maybe you're walking along a trail and you, you kind of look around and think, the creation around me, they actually, they need to know or they, they somehow, this place that I'm in, I'm not just here at the mercy, but rather there's a sense in which I've been called to express God's rule here in how I care, how I think, how I even stand up and walk, how I'm present in this place. That's true in your streets. It's also true in your homes. It's true in your workplaces. That somehow we have to go through a process of, of, of letting our own conscious minds be shaped by this fact that I, as a person created in the image of God, I've been created to rule. I've been created to represent. This is who I am. And so we might begin to consider some of those primary places of influence that we have, these spaces like work or school or home, wherever that is, and begin to consciously accept, prayerfully accept, God, I'm walking into this place today as a, as a ruling representative of yours. And so with that in mind, who can I serve here today? Who here today needs a word of encouragement so that they might flourish more in their work? Uh, who, who in my home is feeling mistreated? 
who around me uh, in places that I, I connect, maybe recreationally, uh, needs to experience some kind of healing. But you begin to see the world differently as you embrace your calling, your identity, our identity to be the royal rulers that we are. And so that's the, I know it might sound a little nebulous, but what I'm talking about is here, uh, really consciously letting the truth of what scripture has said about us to begin to reshape the way we think about ourselves so that we can embrace our royal status and accept our ruling role. It's hard to do that properly if you never think of yourself as that. You have been called and commissioned. You're stamped and responsible to image God wherever you are. It's a beautiful high calling. Leads us to the third step, though. It's getting a little more, it's, a, it's kind of a continuation of, of step, step two. But uh, that is that we need to start ruling close and then expand outwards. What I mean by this is we often can think um, we're called to rule and represent. And so then you think of like the biggest issues you can possibly imagine. And which are not hard to think of, are they? Uh, huge environmental degradation, wars, you know, simple things. Solve in a weekend. And, and that can be very overwhelming because we think, how in the world can we possibly? But I believe that the right steps is to begin to say, Lord, what have you given into my care? What, what is the, the closest thing to me so that I can begin to express your rule as a royal there first? It's the equivalent of, 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 you know, cleaning up your own room before you try to clean up everyone else's. It's that idea that we look first for what's close to me. How can I live this out with what God has already given me? And so what is the closest thing to you? Does anyone have any idea right off the top here what's the closest thing to you? It's you. I I mean that. It's actually you. And what I mean by that is it's literally your embodied self. And what I mean by that is as we begin to embrace our status as royal rulers, we're, we're actually meant to tend to the body that we are, to care for our own embodied selves, that we actually begin to represent and steward God's caring rule through us. And so that's simple things like exercise and eating properly and caring for the bodies, getting proper sleep, uh, not as an expression of selfishness, as an expression of stewardship and worship, that we would actually begin to exercise the rule of God in us and submit to his rule as we do. But then we work out. We begin to think about um, how we're being formed in the image of Christ in our relationships. Uh, we begin to think about our homes or even our, our, our acreages. Or we begin to think of those places. How do I express the rule of God here? Do I, do I need to put up a bird feeder? You know what I'm saying? Cut my lawn more or less? Or what? I, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying, begin to process, what are some of those closest spaces I have? My, my home, my apartment, uh, uh, the, the things that God has given into my care. How do I express God's rule and represent his ways right here in the places where I'm most commonly at? And then we just work outward. What are the primary relationships in our lives? Where do you spend most of your time? What does it mean for you to walk into work? or to show up from work home at night and, and really begin to embrace your call to rule as a royal. And, and of course, you know what that means, right? Because we keep looking at Jesus. We know it means servanthood. We know it means care. It's not dominating. It's getting down to serve the way that Jesus did. 
And we work our way out from there. We begin to ask, how can we as a community be God's ruling royals here in this valley? How is it that the people, as well as the animals and the birds and the watershed and the fish, how did they experience the goodness and the care of God through us because we are here? You know, where we begin to say, well, how does creation, how do the squirrels or how do the deer, how, how do the fish experience us and our presence here in this valley? Have you ever thought of that? Like, how am I being experienced by my neighbor? How does the Creston Valley experience the presence of, of God's people, the Arks and Covenant Church, but beyond that, uh, the other churches? How is it that we are representing his rule through the way that we relate and serve under Jesus? And then, of course, you can extend it beyond thinking about some of those bigger issues that are of concern to us to look for organizations to support. Uh, churches who are on the ground that are representing God's rule effectively and maybe find out a way of supporting them, signing up to serve with them. We start ruling close and then under the leadership of Jesus, we begin to expand that outwards. Those are just three simple things. Uh, well, they're not simple, they're massive, but uh, steps as we consider what does it mean for us to be ruling royals? We've got to keep King Jesus clear We've got to embrace our royal status and accept our ruling role, actually say yes to it, and then start right where we're at and expand it outwards. I do want you to think, though, what difference it might make for us, what difference it might make for you if you were to embrace this in your own life. If, if you were to walk into work with that conscious understanding, how would it change the way you relate to your coworkers? Uh, if you were to really embrace that you've been called to rule and represent, how would it change the way you parent? Um, how would it change uh, the way you structure your week? Um, um, how might you think differently about uh, the, quote, environment, or uh, maybe even some of the political questions that we've been wrestling with? How would you think about those things when you begin to embrace I am a ruling representative of God and I'm called to reflect him in my decisions, in my relationships, the way that I speak and love and serve. I know that Jesus has called us to be ruling royals and somehow I'm convinced he's going to lead us further into that. The invitation for us today is to say, okay, Lord Jesus, if this is who you've created us to be, how are you going to help us get there? And, uh, For me, um, it starts by humbling myself and just asking Jesus to lead us. And so as we close today, let's let's pray for that. Jesus, I know you want to lead us. And you have revealed what it means to be a true royal, a true ruling king. And you've called us to follow you into that. And we confess that we often have sinned because we'll take the idea of rule and we'll use it for our benefit. And often um, others are hurt as a result. Or we act in such ways that the creation that you love and care for is hurt as a result of our choices. And we confess that we often have missed um, our responsibility under you. 
And so with that, Lord, I just ask that you would help us grapple with the truth that you have called us to rule under you and to represent you and that you would give us a vision of that in our own lives, both personally and in our families, but also corporately and as a church. Would you take false ideas about who uh, we are, what we are created for, and replace them with the truth? We've been called to, called to follow you, our King, and to rule and represent you in all of our relationships. So send us, Lord, with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.